Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, June 4th. In today's news, former Defense Secretary Jim Mattis blasts President Trump. Scores of coronavirus testing sites have been forced to close because of vandalism. And Virginia's governor is going to take down the Robert E. Lee statue in Richmond. But first, the big idea. Authorities yesterday upgraded murder charges against the Minneapolis police officer who pinned George Floyd with his knee. Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, Democrat, acknowledged the uphill battle in prosecuting police officers for murder because they're rarely convicted of on-duty killings. But he said he's confident the facts of this case support the charges. Derek Chauvin, the 44-year-old white officer who was captured on video, kneeling on Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes as the black man pleaded for air and his mother, now faces a charge of second-degree murder, in addition to the third-degree murder charge that was filed last week. Thomas Lane, Tu Thao, and Alexander King were fired along with Chauvin in the wake of the incident. Now, those three other officers who were on the scene faced charges of felony aiding and abetting second-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. Bail for all four was set at $1 million. The charges carry maximum sentences of as many as 40 years for all four officers. The last eight days have brought an intense national conversation about systemic racism in America, but also about police rules relating to the use of force, especially as police keep using force against peaceful protesters, raising new questions about their tactics and training. For example... Demonstrators were protesting outside the Austin Police Department over the weekend when officers fired a beanbag round, striking a pregnant woman in the crowd. The woman can be seen on a video that circulated widely online yelling, my baby, my baby. The next day, at the same location, officers again fired a beanbag round as a demonstrator threw rocks and bottles at police. That round struck a 20-year-old black protester who was standing near the man throwing the objects. He is now in critical condition. We're seeing echoes of this across the country. While some incidents have led to discipline for officers involved, the wave of episodes has just as often gone unpunished. Police chiefs leading departments in many big cities, including the District, Boston, Seattle, and San Francisco, signed on to an open letter yesterday saying that not every force can immediately terminate officers. This is often because of collective bargaining agreements with powerful unions that are designed to protect officers, including, as too often happens, dirty cops. Some local politicians are trying to change that. As protests continue in Atlanta, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms promised yesterday to review her city's use of force policies. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti announced yesterday that his police department's budget could be cut by up to $150 million next year, and he proposes to then reinvest that money directly into communities of color. Patrick Skinner, a former CIA operations officer who's now a police officer in his hometown of Savannah, Georgia, has submitted a thoughtful op-ed that we're going to run in our Sunday Outlook section. In it, he explains how the two jobs he's had are very different. Officer Skinner says it makes no sense to fight a war on crime the way he fought the war on terror. He argues that we need to change our mindset about what it means to police in America. At this moment of maximal national tension and outrage, 
when national leaders are calling the streets of America a battle space, with police officers as warriors who are supposed to so-called dominate and give no quarter. He's telling whoever will listen to him. Police are not warriors. They're neighbors. As Patrick puts it, quote, we are not and must not be at war with our neighbors. What we now see deployed in many cities and towns is anti-policing. It's the death of true community police work, and too often, the death of our neighbors. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, Defense Secretary Mark Esper distanced himself from President Trump yesterday, saying the use of active duty forces to quash unrest against the nation is unnecessary at this stage. A few hours later, Esper's predecessor, Jim Mattis, excoriated the president for working to divide the country. Mattis's blunt comments about Trump represent a break from the decorum the retired general said people who leave an administration should afford a sitting president. Since resigning as defense secretary in late 2018, the retired four-star Marine Corps general has largely abstained from criticizing Trump, but he said the events of the past week, especially the clearing of peaceful protesters in Lafayette Square, prompted him to take aim at Trump. In his three-page statement, he writes in part, quote, Donald Trump is the first president in my lifetime who does not try to unite the American people, does not even pretend to try. Instead, he tries to divide us. We are witnessing the consequences of three years of this deliberate effort. We are witnessing the consequences of three years without mature leadership. Mattis called upon all Americans to, quote, unite without him. And he referred to Abraham Lincoln's appeal to Americans in his 1861 inaugural address to summon our better angels and hold the nation together. Mattis wrote, quote, We know that we are better than the abuse of executive authority that we witnessed in Lafayette Square. We must reject and hold accountable those in office who would make a mockery of our Constitution. At the same time, we must remember Lincoln's better angels and listen to them as we work to unite. Trump replied on Twitter by attacking Mattis as, quote, the world's most overrated general. Number two, about 70 coronavirus testing sites across the country have had to close in recent days because of destruction from civil unrest. At least nine health centers in five states have been damaged in the past nights, including in Sacramento, Denver, Philadelphia, and Minnesota. And at least six health centers in five states were closed because of their proximity to the protests. The 70 testing sites out of 424 in the federal program that have closed because of unrest are spread across 17 states and here in D.C. And the virus is still very much raging. It's killed more than 105,000 Americans, and at least 1.8 million infections have been reported. In a moment of bipartisanship that's all too rare these days, the Senate advanced a bill last night to increase flexibility for businesses who are participating in that Paycheck Protection Program The bill gives these businesses more time to use the money ahead of a deadline to forgive the first round of payments. The legislation passed by unanimous consent now goes to Trump's desk. It passed the House last week. The central aim here is to allow businesses 24 weeks instead of eight to spend money that they receive under the program. The restaurant industry especially lobbied hard for this. The economic toll of the contagion is just so staggering. And we're getting a new jobs report this morning that the markets expect to be pretty bad. But other fresh data show millions of Americans are skipping payments on mortgages, auto loans, and other bills they can't afford because 
more than 40 million of our fellow Americans are out of work. Many are getting help from all kinds of lenders in order to keep up. About 3 million auto loans and 15 million credit card accounts are in some kind of program right now to let people skip or make partial payments. And these are probably low estimates. And 4.75 million homeowners, 9% of all Americans with mortgages, have entered into forbearance plans. Number three. Shortly after 5 p.m. on May 7th, 1890, on the docks of the James River in Richmond, 10,000 citizens clamped 20,000 hands on ropes, and they hauled three huge crates a mile and a half up to the empty tobacco field that is now known as Monument Avenue. Inside those boxes, fresh from a sculptor's studio in France, was the massive statue that would soon loom not just the skyline of Richmond, but the psyche of Virginia. Confederate General Robert E. Lee. The 14-foot statue of Lee sits atop a 50-foot base. Anyone who's ever been to Richmond will remember it. After more than a century of Lee worship, Democratic Governor Ralph Northam plans to announce today that he will remove the iconic statue from its preeminent perch in the former capital of the Confederacy. It was covered in graffiti over the weekend by people protesting the death of Floyd. The statue will be put into storage. Word of the pending announcement set off jubilant roars among thousands of protesters gathered at the foot of the edifice. Mel Shelton, 27, a musician, was one of those cheering. He told the crowd, quote, Who said our protests were useless? Who said our protests were stupid? Look what we've done. We are leading the rest of the country. The statue began as the icon of the lost cause of the Confederacy. Then it was the anchor of the city's grandest residential district. Then it became a symbol of racial division. And now it will be gone. It's a reminder that America's best days can still be ahead. That we can change for the better. Last night, I was covering the protests in downtown Washington, and I walked by a boarded-up business. The owner was trying to protect it from looting. A street artist had turned the white boards into a canvas and painted a beautiful rainbow. One word was scrawled in cursive. Love. We can and we will get through this dark chapter in our history with love. Because love wins. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, June 4th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.